and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's social distancing himself from me. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Specifically you, not everybody else, not the uh, the pandemic, just you, Daryl Grove. <laughs> I'm going to try not to take that personally. Um, <laughs> we are recording from home, right? We are not we are. in the studio. We are, I want to say, three miles apart, like at different ends of the city of Richmond. But it feels like a thousand miles. It feels like a thousand miles. We're being responsible. See, I, brought, I brought it back to niceness. That's you did. what I did there. You did. In our hearts, it's a thousand miles. <laughs> we're being socially responsible. Um, at, I would say you took the lead on this. You were the first to suggest that maybe we, because we can work from home, we, we mm-hmm. definitely should. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I still like, I've almost Googled a couple times, like, am I still allowed to go to the grocery store? Can I go into the office? Is that allowed? And I know there are plenty of people who don't have the luxury of working from home, yeah. who do have to go in or I've chosen to just because or have to work from, uh, like, if they're in restaurants or whatever. But I think if we have the option, we should at least try to do our part to not spread it if and when that becomes a possibility. So, yeah, I think working from home, social distancing, all probably pretty good for us. All right. And I've worked from home before. I've got a few quick tips for people. Um, Mm -hmm. one take a shower and get dressed as if you're going to work it'll make all the difference drink a cup of coffee or tea have your breakfast and then start work have some structure to your day yeah, I, I think it really can be like listless if you don't do that. If you wake yes. up and you're just sort of like, oh, I'll just wear my pajamas and I'll start and then I'll like, like it ends up being 2.30 and you haven't quite yep. gotten in gear yet. But here's what I'd also say. Take advantage. Mm-hmm. Take advantage. Ha- take your time in the shower. Have a nice yeah. slow breakfast. Ease into the day and then start working. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, <laughs> do what Daryl said. Ease into it. Have fun. <laughs> All right, Total Sock Show will not stop um, during mm-hmm. t- during the time of social distancing not least because we have all kinds of listener questions. Um, there's true. also, there will be soccer news here and there that, mm-hmm. we, can, that we can respond to, right? For example, this morning, um, UEFA um, had a big old meeting and they decided Euro 2020 is not going to happen in 2020. It's going to be Euro 2021. They have pushed it back an entire year. Yeah, which, I mean, that feels like the logical conclusion, that feels like the logical decision to make. It just still, in the moment, is a bit of a bummer because it it's just another thing that won't be around that we are all kind of planning for. That said, Euro 2021 uh, and the summer of 2021, going to be busy. Going to be a busy time for us, Daryl Grove. Because there'll also be Copa America 2021 because uh-huh. that's been pushed back. There'll probably be Gold Cup 2021. Uh-huh. We'll have plenty mm-hmm. soccer to talk about. I like, actually, will. I like making this decision early because it just stops yep. us when Wondering, right? It stops us wondering what's going to be happening. It also opens up the possibility. It opens up the calendar. It opens up the schedule um, for if and when this is all over and there's some return to normalcy for the seasons to just pick up where they left off. Right? There won't mm-hmm. be, well, we can't do that because the Euros start in a week. There will be the opportunity to maybe play through the summer and Liverpool can actually win the league title and Aston Villa can actually be relegated. Yeah, so according uh, that that would be good for them. Maybe not the Villa part, just the Liverpool part. Um, yeah, so the current aim is to complete uh, all current competitions by June 30th of this summer. Then the new dates for the Euros would be June 11th to July 11th of 2021. But the idea being, I think, that you then remove some of the pressure that if you kept the Euros on or you had not yet postponed them, then there might be clubs or um, uh, leagues reopening too soon because they want to get the competitions going. They want to get them done so they yeah. get, get time to get set for the Euros. This way, you buy some time. You don't really have to rush back into it. They've also added that they may end up playing Champions League and Europa League games on weekends to mm. sort of fill in some of the gaps and get things done. So, so we'll I have think, soccer. Uh, if- we'll have soccer to cover this summer. It just won't be the yeah. soccer that we planned. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, but the, I mean, but I think then we ideally will have uh, soccer to cover and we'll have sort of a nice time period to do it in as opposed to a very stressful time. I mean, Brazil still has not canceled as, as far as I know. Ooh. The players may go on strike because they're still playing behind closed doors this weekend. Yeah. And I think like this sort of removes any likelihood of that happening anywhere else by basically removing a massive amount of pressure and instead pushing it yeah. back a year. So the soccer authorities seem to be making sensible decisions. I would encourage um, our listeners to do the same um, I would as well like I said there's still Total Sock Show content yesterday mm-hmm. you and Ryan recorded a list of essentially uh, movies, soccer movies and documentaries to, mm-hmm. to stream I really enjoyed listening there were a couple in there that I didn't know about and I'm excited to, uh, to go and watch 
I was waiting for a mention of my favorite uh-huh. soccer film, and it did <laughs> not come. Yeah. I So I should add, uh, I will let you say what it was, but I did have it in the notes, and we basically were running out of time. So I left it off so I didn't just kind of shoehorn it in for safety's sake. But I did recognize that that meant I was going to be hearing from you, and here we are. Kicking and screaming. Kicking and screaming. It's peak Will Ferrell, 2005. Kicking and screaming, is, it's not just a good soccer film. It's a, just a good comedy film, all in all. Uh, I mean, yeah, and, and it gives us the uh, the fundamental tactics of play it to the Italians. Play it to, well, isn't that like such a, um, an actual thing that, even though it's not that realistic soccer-wise, that's a realistic thing that happens in soccer, right? It's when you have one player yes. on your team or two players who are just so, so much better than everybody else. It's just natural to keep giving them the ball, giving them the ball, give the ball to the Italians. But ultimately, that's not the best tactic. That's the lesson of that movie. So my my weird, like, goofy approach to that was going to be that uh, I wanted to do the 1995 Noah Baumbach version of Kicking and Screaming and then just be like, I don't know why Daryl thinks this is a soccer movie. It doesn't make any sense. And just watch the whole thing and then be very confused. But then I realized that was a lot of time for a three-second joke. <laughs> I would say as well, Kicking and Screaming combines two things that you and I are passionate about. I'm going to say three things. We're passionate about the early 2000s comedy of Will Ferrell, right? And mm-hmm. then we've probably watched those movies a bunch of times. We're yep. obviously passionate about soccer. I would say yep. you and I are passionate about coffee. Yep, I would agree coffee with that. Coffee plays a key role in kicking and screaming. It really does. you got to get the espresso in there. And then Mike Ditka's mustache also, right? That's a big one for you. you yes. got a lot of love for him. Go fetch me a juice box. <laughs> well, I am sorry uh, I did not uh, include that in there. Were there any other ones that you felt like should have been included? We've had a lot of people saying, know this or know that. Uh, many of the answers to those can be summed up as, I have not seen those or forgot they existed. Yeah, we can't list every movie that is ever about soccer, right? Nah. Uh, nah. We will have time to talk about a few, though, maybe, um, depending on, on how long we are social distancing ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about maybe even like watching like a documentary and then breaking it down or watching a movie and sort of reviewing it that way as a as a sort of uh, stopgap measure if if the mood strikes us. But as you've alluded to, we also have many, many lister questions. So we could also spend some time uh, catching up on those. We do. And I appreciate the transition. But before we move on, I just want to give one more plug for Soccer 101, Taylor. Um, just in, just in case that. people didn't catch it, Soccer 101 is our spin-off show where we talk about uh, more timeless things than we usually talk about on the Total Soccer Show. Soccer 101 is back. We are publishing an episode every week. It'll probably be every Monday, more or less, right? Um, start of the week. The first episode was a review of Dos Acero, USA 2, Mexico 0 in the 2002 World Cup. I really enjoyed watching it. I really enjoyed our review. I think it was a fun review. I would encourage people to please go and subscribe to Soccer 101 and give that a listen. Uh, We are recording this Tuesday, uh, mid-late afternoon, uh, so by the time many people hear this, uh, it might be too late. But worth noting, uh, Jason Davis of JD and the Rod fame, uh, he and uh, Jared Dubois are going to be live watching at 9 p.m. tonight, that same USA-Mexico game from 2002. Uh, You can uh, tune in uh, to twitch.tv slash JD and the Rod, and then basically (laughs) I'm going to jump on, I think around halftime, I think, to sort of recap the first half and then talk a bit about what's going to happen, and then I'm going to jump off. But I'll be on there for a little bit, but there'll be... Uh, doing some live commentary on that one. So you're going to do halftime analysis on Twitch of a 2002 World Cup round of 16 game between the USA and Mexico? Yeah, I think there's like a three-minute gap between the, the halves. So there I'll is, do some a, uh, really, really abbreviated analysis. If it's the same YouTube video we watch, there's a countdown of three minutes, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I'm talking about. You're going to have to get in there. You have to get in there. Okay, well, I'm responsible for editing today. I'll make sure this is published mm-hmm. before that happens. Um, I will try and put a link in the show notes so that people can, can find that JD in the Rod um, extravaganza. So you're going to put this out at 8.59? Yeah, Yeah, I I imagine I'm a faster worker than that. (laughs) I I imagine you are as well. (laughs) Like you said, Taylor, listener questions. Uh, We have, I think, seven to answer today. Um, We encourage more listener questions. Uh, Please send them to us, totalsoccershow.com slash questions. The next few weeks, at the very least, will be a good chance for us to catch up on listener questions. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, we've got lots to get to. Let's start with uh, Matt Cost. Does yeah. that work for you? Yeah, it All certainly right. does. Uh, what three women 
from the U.S. Women's National Team, would you choose to combine with eight USMNT players to form a USA co-ed 11? Uh, Daryl checked with our local league. Uh, the local co-ed rules are that you have to have uh, at least four women on the pitch. So we've amended Matt's question to four women and then seven men from the uh, various national teams. Uh, it's what CVSA does, yeah, uh, and it's what makes this more interesting. So we're going to choose four U.S. Women's National Team players to combine with the U.S. Men's National Team to make a co-ed 11. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, how to, do you want to just uh, do each of our 11s, or do you want to go back and forth about which player we selected? I'm open to either path here. Um, let, let's just go with the players we selected, because I don't really have a full 11. That's it. I mean, I guess I, w- I went for areas of vulnerability for the men's national team, and okay. who would fit in the best uh, within those sort of areas. I did the same. Okay, so the first thing I did is I thought, the U.S. does not have a destructive win the ball, get out of my way, defensive midfielder. Mm-hmm. Um, so Julie Ertz was the first name I penned in. Julie Ertz I, is the number six. I went I went with uh, Julie Ertz either as that number six or as our other ball-playing center back because mm. we forget Julie Ertz started off as a center back, moved to that holding midfield spot. Uh, but I could see Julie Ertz and John Brooks as a very strong center back duo. Uh, but then, yes, I also had her as a possible number six if the situation requires as well. Well, the second name on my list is I wanted some authority in the back line because it has been a while since the, the men's mm. national team has had any sort of, um, like, regular leader at centre-back who doesn't regularly get injured. So, Becky Sauerbrunn. Becky Sauerbrunn was going in my back four, and I wanted to see Becky Sauerbrunn partner John Brooks. All right. Well, uh, as I get a uh, an incoming Skype call, apologies for that. Um, I did not go with another centre-back because I had Julie Ertz there, although your argument makes a lot of sense. I did have another defender who's not actually a defender, because why not break that tradition? Crystal Dunn? Uh, I'm going to go with Crystal Dunn as our left-back slash left-winger if we need to move her forward. But I do think you look at some of the deficiencies in uh, left-back. Yeah, I'm gonna, just going to stick with I'm, what got us here. I'm laughing because I'm imagining Crystal Dunn being like, oh, a whole new national team. <laughs> oh, I'm playing left back again. Okay. Yep, you sure are. But as the you have wingers on this team Berhalter, as well. All right. <laughs> well, we've seen Berhalter start to experiment with utilizing a slightly more attacking left back than just having the left back who becomes a left center back. Yeah. So I think if we were going to continue with that, she fits there. But then we also do have a dearth of uh, wingers, especially with some of the current injuries um, it, when it comes to the men's national team at uh, those wing spots. So she could also be there as well. So I feel like uh, Crystal Dunn, and then we know she can play central too. So why not even have her there as a depth option? She just ticks a lot of boxes. So I think the U.S. national team, the U.S. men's national team, lacks a set piece specialist. There is no Ooh. one that I really trust taking set pieces. Christian Pulisic, I think, often uh, this is harsh, but kind of lets us down. Um, mm-hmm. So I I want to include um, the player that Carlos Cordero calls Megan Rapinoe. Oh boy. Oh, Carlos Cordero. You forgot so about that, right? I recently re that in. footage. Uh, yeah, oh, Megan, yeah, Megan Rapino. I think, um, I made this argument that I still think she's the best player um, on the US Women's National Team. Her technique for delivery on uh, free kicks, I mean, striking free kicks just straight at goal, one thing, but crosses on corners, crosses from open play, like basically Beckham-esque crosses from uh, Megan Rapino. I think that's a thing that the, the men's national team lacks. So I think if we're going to go co-ed, then it would be a great weapon to add to the team. So I, I wanted to put Megan Rapino in there. Maybe maybe I would even have put her in there and just go five and six uh, because I looked at other areas of vulnerability and I couldn't quite fit her because I thought Crystal Dunn with the versatility ticked some of those boxes. You're right, though. A set-piece specialist could be solid, in which case maybe one of my remaining two could also uh, fit that box because I'm going to go with uh, a true number 10, and I really could be persuaded between Rose Lavelle and Lindsay Horan. Either one of those is fine with me. I think Rose Lavelle is probably more of a number 10 for what the United yeah. States is looking for. So Maybe it's Rose Lavelle, but you could talk me into Lindsay Horan pretty easily. I, honestly, I want to talk you into Rose Lavelle because that was my choice as well. I think the right. the dribbling, the change of direction, the sort of trickery of Rose Lavelle um, is something that I don't think you can get from any current U.S. men's national team players who are regulars in the first team. Whereas Rose Lavelle is already a World Cup winner, a World Cup final goal scorer. She's proven she can absolutely um, do it when the pressure's on. So I love my, my midfield three, by the way, is Julia Ertz holding midfield. Um, Tyler Adams, like number eight, running up and down. Rose Lavelle, number 10. Ooh, okay. That's All a right. trio, I right? Like th- 
I like that midfield trio. I like Rose Lavelle in there. And then for my final one, uh, obviously the United States men's national team struggling when it comes to that out-and-out number nine. I know you've got a lot of faith in Jesus Ferreira, but I might have more faith in Alex Morgan when she comes back. But I might even have more faith in Carly Lloyd right now. If you put Carly Lloyd in there to be that sort of central leader figure who you know is going to score the goals and never stop competing, it might be Carly Lloyd. And actually, I want to have this conversation. We watched all the, um, the She Believes Cup games mm-hmm. and one of the big things and sorry and the olympic qualifiers one of the big things was in the absence of alex morgan carly lloyd is kind of staking a claim that even in my late 30s i am now a center forward and i am the best center forward on this u.s women's national team roster and i think i'm mostly convinced by the end of the she believes yep. cup yeah as am i uh, because one of the things that you and i talked a lot about in the world cup is alex morgan uh not always taking her chances not always which is weird as right sharp but, as we would like but yes yeah, I mean, she's got the speed, she's got the the technical ability. It's just sometimes she doesn't quite have that clinical precision you want from a number nine. Um, if we are sticking with the Burhalter system of a lot of movement, a lot of running from that number nine, maybe that is Alex Morgan more so. But Carly Lloyd, I just think, has the sort of predatory instincts to find a way to score when you truly need someone to do that. And I think the United States uh, men's national team and thus co-ed national team routinely does and will need that. Okay, so here's my final USA co-ed 11. And yours mm-hmm. can be different. I, I would encourage you to read yours out and we don't have to split the difference or make any decisions, mm-hmm. right? So Zach Steffen in goal. I've gone Reggie Cannon at right back. Sauerbrunn and Brooks as my centre-backs. Serginho Dest at left back. Uh, midfield three of Ertz, number six. Adams, number eight. Lavelle, number 10. Although I would give Adams the actual number six shirt and Ertz the number eight shirt, just because Julie Ertz wears the number eight shirt. Um, mm-hmm. Right wing, Christian Pulisic. Centre forward, Josie Altador. Left wing, Megan Rapino. All right, uh, I'm, I'm figuring it out on the fly here. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go Stefan and goal. I'm actually going to uh, mention a player we have not even mentioned, uh, but I'm going to go uh, with Abby Dahlkemper as my mm. uh, my other center back. So I'm going to go uh, Kristen on left back, Serginho Dest right back, uh, Brooks and Abby Dahlkemper as my two center backs. Uh, Julie Ertz ahead of them, then ahead of Julie Ertz. We've got Rose Lavelle and Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic on the left, Carly Lloyd up top, and question mark on the right. I guess Jordan Morris. I guess Jordan. <laughs> Somebody else on the right. Who knows? All right. Well, if he's in his current form, then we're doing well then, right? Um, yeah. All right. There's our co-ed 11s. Um, I would encourage anyone maybe to tweet at us their co-ed 11. Um, and again, the rules in our local league are um, seven men, four women. That's the rules for co-ed soccer in the Central Virginia Soccer Association in Richmond, Virginia, which actually has a really good co-ed league, right? I've played a few games in mm-hmm. it and I usually enjoy it. And then, I, yes, I, as do I. It's been a while since I played in it. I also think some teams will usually go with, or will go with a uh, a female goalkeeper. And then you could make that argument too of Lisa Nair versus Zach Steffen, especially with Steffen's uh, current injury situation. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm always weirdly unconvinced by Alyssa Nair, and yet she keeps winning World Cups. So There we go. <laughs> she keeps on doing it. She keeps on doing it. All right. Uh, another uh, women's soccer question. I've done the research on this one, but Daryl, we're going to let you uh, have a guess. Okay. Uh, from Katie Sutton, uh, my scoutee, Katie Cousins, did not declare for the NWSL draft so she could recover from surgery and hopefully sign an overseas contract. If she does not sign a contract due to the COVID-19 soccer stoppage or any other reason, can she declare for the 2021 M- uh, NWSL draft. So Katie Cousins didn't declare for the 2020 draft because she was injured. Right. And uh, and she the plan was to go overseas, right? You just go overseas and you just sign for a club, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Katie's asking, can she then just declare for the next draft in 2021? My gut says no, because I feel like you maybe have, have to um, either be in college or have just completed college to enter the draft. But I, I'm not 100% confident in that. Um, I am not 100% confident having researched the answer, but I'm very (laughs) confident, and I'm very confident that you are correct. Uh, Because from what I saw from the eligibility for the 2020 draft, uh, you had to be at least 18 years of age during the college-protected period. Uh, You had to register for the draft uh, with the NWSL by their deadline, so that's no big deal. But the biggest one, you must be a player who will forego any remaining college eligibility or you must have exhausted your eligibility during that academic year, the 19, uh, or 2019-2020 academic year. Oh, that's the key and part that then, right? Be- that's the key exactly. part. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we would assume that that would be adjusted for next year. Um, and so then you look at the two additional notes. Players who register but are not selected uh, will qualify as uh, free agents, essentially discovery players. But again, Katie Cousins, as far as we know, did not declare she wasn't in that list, which means players who did not register will not be eligible uh, for any roster for NWSL for that f- following season, which is why people keep saying she was probably looking to go abroad, because if she skipped the draft, she 
can't then go sign for an NWSL team. Yeah. So I think what we would probably see is her uh, next next season basically being a free agent, free to sign for anybody. But uh, unless they kind of had some special circumstances or decide to change their rules a little bit, which they may well could do, I think as things stand, she would not be uh, eligible to be drafted. So I don't know. I don't know that she'd definitely be a free agent. She may end up on some some team would have to make a discovery claim on her. I know NWSL mm-hmm. has that system as well, but I don't yeah, know what exactly. differentiates them if you just were a college player who never entered the draft. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's there's a few different uh, possible uh, avenues for her, but I don't think the draft is one of them, is the easiest way to maybe summarize. Here's my take based on very limited knowledge and just, you know, maybe a few a few things I've heard from uh, from people who've worked with uh, Katie, uh, Katie Cousins. She mm-hmm. may not be suited to the NWSL because mm-hmm. it's, it is more of a sort of physical league because um uh the NWSL is more sort of physical than say leagues over in europe she may it may be a better fit for katie cousins to go and play go and play in a more technical league i mean i don't know if uh the university of tennessee where she was was like the most like free-flowing tiki-taka soccer but i take your point that i think she's that type of player injury and you want to work a little bit more on the other technical side of the game no it's not even flourish within them it's not even injury and it's not that she needs to work on the technical side of the game it's just from what i understand she's the type of player that isn't blessed with pace and strength, but is blessed with a sort of almost um, La Masia sort of uh, ability to just keep hold of the ball and no one can ever get the ball off of her. You know what I mean? Right. So, like, slow it down, but I'm impossible to dispossess. It may be there's a better fit than NWSL for a player like that. So you want her signing for the Barcelona women's team? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe that would be a good fit. If they, I actually have never seen them play, but watching the... In the recent She Believes Cup, the Spain team did mm-hmm. a sort of uh, Barcelona tiki-taka type thing. It wouldn't surprise me if that is in the DNA um, of the Barcelona women's team. So, yeah, there we go. Katie Cousins to Barcelona. All right. So uh, th- that's confirmed now. Thank you for that, Daryl. And if Katie <laughs> Cousins Learn Catalan maybe and Spanish. To- <laughs> if Katie Cousins, however, maybe needs to work on her hydration <laughs> to be able to uh, play at the top of her game, to be able to f- uh, function at the top of her game, uh, then maybe today's sponsor could help her out just a little bit. Today's show is sponsored by Hydrant. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. So these are drink packets packed mm-hmm. with ele- electrolytes uh, that mean you can flavor your drink, but it's not just empty flavors, it's electrolytes as well. Yeah, I mean, not only do electrolytes have what plants crave, uh, they also will Don't help put it on the plants. Uh... <laughs> Drink it. Don't put it on the plants. Uh, their packets also feature uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc that will help you hydrate quickly, stay hydrated all day. I think we're about to break into just... sunk. A little, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I will. You want me to? I will not do that. Uh, we should add the formula is vegan. You can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack, but there's no synthetic colors. There are no artificial sweeteners. So you're just getting sort of natural uh, products in that you will need to keep you hydrated that will taste okay, but will also give you the minerals and such you need to be able to perform in La Liga should you move there. So I... We haven't got any of this yet, right? But I do mm-hmm. know that I saw a form attached to this where um, uh, people who are advertising this can request a sample. I'm going to mm-hmm. request a sample because I have been told since my ileostomy, I am slightly, uh, I am likely to be electrolyte deficient or to like struggle mm-hmm. to uh, uh, maintain my electrolyte levels. So this might be perfect for me. I'm really going to give this a go and, uh, and report back. All right. So Daryl's going to report back. Uh, if our listeners would like to try it themselves, uh, they can get 25% off their first order by going to drinkhydrant.com and entering the promo code SOCCER at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code SOCCER for 25% off your first order. So drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code SOCCER. And of course, Taylor, hail Hydrant. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done, Mr. Grove. Uh, next question comes to us from uh, Gloria uh, Umotoni. Do you want to ask this one or do you want me to keep rolling? Uh, I'll ask just because I like the sound okay. of my own voice. Gloria right. asks, what do you think some of the best, i.e. successful transfers of the, are of the last 15 to 20 years? years uh mm-hmm. gloria says for context i'm working on a project that is looking into some data-driven indicators of transfer success i don't right. know we can do data-driven indicators but i can like just say what i think are the best transfers of the last 15 to 20 years i took my cutoff as being sort of 2000 just because right. that's an easy 20 year um 20 year period right 
my order and my sort of uh, criteria for this were I sat on my front porch drinking coffee. Uh, as we mentioned before, do that before you get to work. Uh, yeah. This was maybe in the intermediate period, and I just thought about which were the biggest ones for me, which one stood out to me. Um, I think if we did it, we could probably do a full show about like the 20 best transfers of the last 20 years. Maybe we'll end up doing that. Oh, we could, yeah, um, we could, uh, so- actually, we could remove the time frame and just do a uh, best transfers ever show. That's definitely oh, a show for the future. Yeah, I'd be fine there with that. There we go. Um, but so I think if we were to do that one, maybe i go a little bit deeper on some of this. So some of these are the ones that I think are most familiar, most immediate to me, which is my way of saying that all three of mine are coming from the Premier League. Yep. Though I do have some honorable mentions for non-Premier League sides as well. All right, Tyler, who you got? Give me your first one. I mean, the biggest one for me is Paul Pogba to Juventus on a free transfer. When he's 19 years old, he moves, becomes a starter, basically helps establish this dynasty at Juve. I would argue is is uh, very instrumental in bringing Juve sort of back to the forefront in terms of being a global brand. Yeah. He, gave he, them, raises... he gave them a marketable sort of star as well as exactly. being part of a really successful team, right? Yeah, and then I think, I mean, he moves back to Manchester United, obviously, August of 2016, four years after he first moved to Juve, uh, this time going the other way for 105 million euros. Uh, so a decent rate of return on a free transfer. I think they did have to pay some training compensation, but still. Not that much, uh, Not quite 100. <laughs> yeah, no. And then I would argue as well that uh, two summers later, July 2018, Juve then signed Cristiano Ronaldo, not for a free, which I erroneously said on a past episode, uh, but for 100 million euros. And I do sort of wonder if... Paul Pogba's rise at Juve and subsequent transfer literally finances that move for Ronaldo, or at least helps finance in some part, but also raises that brand enough that for Ronaldo, he sees Juve as an attractive option for continuing his career and sort of staying on top of global awareness. Certainly didn't hurt. So Juve getting Paul Pogba for a free uh, and then selling him for 105 million euros is definitely one of the most successful transfers of the last 15 to 20 years. Um, I would say so. For my first one, I'm going with Casemiro. So Casemiro, okay. I didn't know his transfer history. I like that one. And it's why it came in my head of like, where did he come from? Because I don't remember mm-hmm. a big money transfer fee. He's- like they didn't sign him from um, another Spanish team for 50 million euros, right? Even though that could, you, watching him play, you could easily think that's what happened. Um, yeah, and, and, and I, I just wanted to jump in, sorry, just to say that he's also one that like when we've talked about him in the past, we always have that moment of like, is he a, like an academy guy? Did Zidane right? bring him through? Is that what it was? So it's easy to sort of misremember the details there. Here's what happened. Uh, he was at Sao Paulo, just playing the Brazilian domestic league. In 2013, as a 21-year-old, um, Real Madrid just uh, got him on loan for a year and then paid 5.1 million uh, Uh, The story I saw was in pounds, so 5.1 million pounds or the equivalent thereof for Casemiro from Sao Paulo in 2013. He was 21 years old. Then they sent him out to Porto on loan in 2014-15, which is actually really smart because obviously he speaks Portuguese. Go and play in um, a not quite as good but similar league, like, you know, maybe get a little bit settled. They even got a 1 million loan fee for, for Casemiro going and getting that bit of experience. Then he comes back in 2015, and then soon after, we're onto the three Champions League wins in a row under Zidane. And Casemiro, even though Tony Kraus and Luka Modric were like really impressive players, Casemiro is definitely the, the sort of new Makaleli defensive midfielder. Um, the mistake they made in letting Makaleli go, they sort of fixed in uh, signing Casemiro, and making him central to that, that all-conquering three Champions League winning team. Uh, yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty yep. good. And then uh, I mentioned yesterday the the Brazil documentary you can find on Amazon if you're looking for soccer footage. He is uh, heavily involved in that squad as well. And it's just easy to only think of Casemiro as this incredibly important player for Real Madrid, especially under Zinedine Zidane. But it's also worth remembering that like his rise and that move brings him into sort of notoriety, puts eyes on him, and that probably helps him get that spot with Brazil and become a kind of a key figure for a, a very talented Brazil side. Absolutely. So there you go. Casemiro for £5 million in 2013. I think that's one of the best signings of the of the last few years. What you got? Another uh, one, Tyler. What else you got? I've got the uh, the important point that. Uh being the best transfer is not necessarily just about being a bargain. It's about filling an area of obvious need and kind of propelling the team that you've moved to to that next level, uh, which is my way of paving the way to talk about a player who was signed for 75 million pounds. Who is it, Daryl? Do you know? 75 million pounds? No. Uh-huh. 
Virgil van Dyke. Uh, I still think 75 million pounds for Virgil van Dyke is a bit of a bargain when you look at what he has done for Liverpool. Because going back to before he signed for them, we had a lot of conversations about how maybe they needed a bit more strength in the center of center of the park. They signed Naby Keita, but they bring in Fabinho. They bring in other players who could do that. And then we talked about their defensive problems and how they didn't really have a center back leader. I went back and looked at that um, that 2015-2016 Europa League campaign uh, when they were able to kind of get past Dortmund for Three, their starting center backs are Dejan Lovren, uh, Mamadou Sako. Uh, when they're eventually eliminated in that competition by Sevilla, Colotore is starting for them. Mm. Just not that sort of rock at the back. And and in those days, we talked about how if they can bring in somebody who will really solidify the back line and be that defensive leader, I don't know how anybody stops Liverpool. And here we are now with them winning the Champions League, uh, likely to win the Premier League if and when the league resumes. And it feels like he is instrumental in that. So even though they spent a lot of money for him, that is just a signing that makes so, so much sense these days. I think that's a good example of a signing that they knew he was the right person. And they obviously hit a brick wall trying to negotiate with Southampton, who eventually just mm-hmm. said no, right? Didn't they have to, they had to wait out a whole transfer window yeah. Uh, because sort of the, I think the the relationship got so bad <laughs> during negotiate. Well, when you say negotiations, they kind of made the offer without properly making the offer. Southampton were not happy. Then they kind of overpaid. I think what they might have paid if they'd just done it the right way. But I think it's uh, it's sort of testament to knowing that this is definitely the correct signing, and we'll pay more than we expected because we know it's the right signing, and then be improved right. All right, yeah. so uh, I've got uh, Virgil van Dijk as okay. my second signing. Who else have you got? All right, well, just on a, on a quick honorable mention, since you mentioned Virgil van Dijk, I think signed around the same time, Andy Robertson is similar, yeah. but on a bargain, £8 million from Hull. Yeah, there's a, there's a good TIFO video explaining like some of the best transfers of the last like, 10 years. And yeah. I think they pointed out that his value is now at least seven times higher, yep. probably even more than that. So that alone maybe, maybe justifies his inclusion. And you think about the upgrade from, is it Alberto Moreno, who was yeah. sort of widely regarded as uh, something of a joke at left back, to Andy Robertson, which didn't seem yeah. like a big name signing at the time. But look at him now. Look at him now. Yeah. All right, for Again, my... that, that Liverpool backline was Alberto Moreno and Nathaniel Klein as your fullbacks. And oh, then like wow. Lovren and Colo Torre in that final game. Wow, wow, wow. Um, okay, yeah. so my actual second pick, I've bundled three players together. Um, <laughs> I know who you're talking about. It's about the absolute bargain that happened when Steve Walsh, I think, was in charge of scouting. Ben Rigglesworth, who's now at Wolves, was part of the Leicester scouting system. Um, but over a, what, two or three year period, Leicester City signed... N'Golo Conte, 23 years old, from Cannes for £5.6 million, um, then sold him to Chelsea for £32 million. Um, in 2014, this is reverse chronological order, um, they signed Riyad Mahrez for £400,000 uh, from Le Havre, a second division team in France, and later sold him to Man City for £60 million. And then in 2012, so a couple of years previous, they had paid Fleetwood Town, non-league Fleetwood Town, £1 million, which I think was a non-league record at the time, uh, for Jamie Vardy, a 24 or 25-year-old Jamie Vardy. So three absolute bargains that um, they weren't just, it's not just because they're bargains, it's because they won the Premier League. And they definitely won the Premier League um, mainly because of those three signings. Yep, no arguments here. Uh, I had N'Golo Kante uh, on my honorable mentions list. That same uh, TIFO video I mentioned said that basically when they were trying to find a Cambiasso replacement, they were looking at like uh, defensive midfielders who had like certain uh, performance levels, and it was like Tony Cruz, it was Chabi Alonso, and then suddenly it was this guy N'Golo Kante. And they're like, wait, let's look at him some more. And, and now <laughs> here cheap. we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm with you uh, for all three of those. Yeah. Uh, even though that should be two, three, and four for you, the Daryl Grove kind rule of. applies, which is that he will always find a way to, uh, to shoehorn into other. Well, ones. it would have been boring to just name those three, right? Because it's all, for, it's all for the same reason, which is essentially uh-huh. that they then had that fairy tale Premier League win. Um, and then good sell-ons for Kante, 32 million, um, Mares, 60 million, and Vardy uh, has just committed the rest of his life to Leicester City. <laughs> He has. He has indeed. Uh, my final one I wanted to mention, I do have some honorable mentions, uh, including Sergio Aguero going to Man City. Now their leading goal scorer of all time, but also sort of helps cement Man City as this juggernaut team to be dealt with. Uh, helps them win their first Premier League, transitions well under Pep Guardiola. I had Luis Suarez to Barcelona, a big one for a number of reasons. I also had Lewandowski, uh, Lewandowski excuse me, to Bayern Munich and again on a free from Borussia Dortmund. But my, my other biggest one that I definitely wanted to spotlight, I don't think 
think is this is just my bias, but it's David De Gea. Uh, signed by Sir Alex Ferguson in June of 2011 for 18.9 million pounds, which hilariously was the British record for a goalkeeper at that time that has since been eclipsed quite a little bit. But I think you look at where he was when he signed, where United were, and then how he has basically become their most important player in a time of complete upheaval. He's had four permanent managers uh, since signing for Manchester United. Uh, And though they've been very up and down in their results, I think he has been the constant. He was a four-time player of the year. That had never happened before at that club. And just that they have been able to keep him. And I think he has then helped them sort of stay in some competitions and stay eligible for competitions that I think otherwise they would have been eliminated from far earlier. So I think for the amount he that was paid for him, uh, in contrast to what he has meant to that team, and then literally what he has done on the field to keep them around, uh, or at least keep them uh, eligible for other competitions, I have David De Gea as a very influential signing. So I'm not going to disagree with him being a great signing. I actually think if you're talking Man United goalkeepers, Edwin van der Sar is the better signing. I don't know where. Yeah, I guess he he's 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 uh, recent enough. I think you're probably true. Two thousand and five. Two thousand and five mm-hmm. is when Edwin van der Sar, at thirty five years old, um, went from Fulham to Manchester United for two million pounds. And here's why I think it's so mm-hmm. important. Man United were in an absolute panic about who their goalkeeper yep. was going to be. Right? It was it was kind of disaster after disaster. Then maybe they thought it'd be Tim Howard, but then it turns out that. Ferguson didn't quite, he wasn't mm-hmm. quite there with it, right? Um, I mean, there's that Nike video where Wayne Rooney kicks Tim Howard out of goal, or scores on Tim Howard while playing goalkeeper. Yeah, they considered <laughs> Wayne Rooney in goal instead of Tim Howard. But I really like the idea of Ferguson keep trying and trying and trying, and then in the end he's sort of like, all right, how about we just go with someone who is already kind of an old guy, but has done it right, he used to play for Juventus. It's kind of weird that he's playing for Fulham. Because of his age, I could get him for two million pounds, and then he could be my guy for um, I don't know, I don't even know how long, but he must have been there at least five years, right? And had a lot of success with Manchester United. I want to say he won the Champions League with United as well. He did. He was the goalkeeper. There we he go. He was the one who uh, played the head games with Nicholas Anelka. Yes. So, did I convince you? Maybe Edwin Van der Sar is an even better signing than David de Gea. Not even a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, here's my third. I I, I think I have watched Man United a lot more than you, obviously, because I'm a fan of them. And I am just keenly aware of how many nil-nil games or one-nil wins easily could have been three-nil losses or three-one losses were it not for David De Gea. So I think you're right that uh, Van der Sar probably brought the stability that allowed for the the, like Champions League win, a lot of the league titles under Ferguson. But I think David De Gea has just (laughs) maybe helped keep United afloat. So he's busy making up for all the other bad signings. Making all Exactly. Uh, Exactly. So my... <laughs> Van der Sar actually just came to me. I might want to make him my third choice, but the guy that's um, right. in my notes is Vincent Company. Uh, Ooh, 22 that's years a great, old. Great uh, answer. Yeah, Manchester City bought him from Hamburg for, I believe, either six million or eight million pounds. And he ever so slightly predates the, the big takeover, right? So this was still Marcus was the coach. It was, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, Thaksin was the, uh, was the owner. It was before, wow. It was before the big money takeover. But Vans- really, I would never have guessed that. He predated by like a month. Like he's just, he's just ah. under the wire. And, but all those, like, do you remember when there was the takeover? There was all mm-hmm. the talk about, oh, they're going to sign this guy and this guy and that guy and that guy. Turns out... Roque Santa Cruz, man. They did it. (laughs) No, but you know what I'm saying? When the actual takeover happened, there was big talk about they're going to sign Messi and Ronaldo and and Mm -hmm. Ramos and all this sort of stuff. But in the end, there was a guy that they just signed that no one really talked about who ended up being an absolutely key figure for the next uh, 10 plus years, right? So Vincent Company Uh, was a magnificent signing. It turns out... Um, they'd signed him because when Mark Hughes, so Mark Hughes is the Man City coach in 2008, um, he used to manage Blackburn. Blackburn had played Hamburg in a preseason friendly. Um, and Mark Hughes had just like watched Vincent Company play and been like, who is this like 20 year old guy who's just bossing everybody around and is clearly the, the main man on this Hamburg team? Uh, and then when he gets the Man City job, he's sort of like, I'm going to go and sign that Vincent Company fella. And then, I mean, and then he goes on to be a key figure for them over a couple different managers, over a couple different title-winning campaigns. Yes. Uh, is that he sort won of the title figure. last year? Right? Yeah. It was his goal. I mean, Remember yeah. that goal from distance? That was his swan song. That was his goodbye to yep. Man City. Was here's this goal from distance to win the title? By the way, I was a centre back the whole time. Also, uh, from by all accounts, one of the nicest people in yes. global soccer. Yeah. So I, I think as well, you know, you you get a leader who's nice but who can also perform. Yeah, I think that's a decent signing. Um, all right, you ready to move on to the next question, yeah. Mr. Taylor? Mm-hmm. Well, this comes from Jeff Root. 
Jeff Root wants to know, if you could choose one territory or region that is not an independent country to gain FIFA membership, so similar to like Scotland or Wales, um, which one would you pick and why? So I think there are two uh, obvious answers here. You could go Catalonia. You could go with the Basque country. Uh, and I think uh, because we hear a lot more about Catalonia, I'm going to go with the Basque country just because that was one that I, I had to dig a little bit deeper on. But you do have a lot of uh, eligible players, both from Spain and then also from France. That was the one that I kept forgetting until I looked at a possible roster. Um, and you've got a fairly deep squad, uh, including basically the entire Bilbao team. You could just put yep. them in and immediately have some consistency and then augment that squad with some key players. And suddenly I feel like you've got a team that are, at the very least, going to qualify for the Euros. So you could go, yeah, you could go the entire Bilbao team, because obviously mm-hmm. they're all Basque eligible. And you could add, like, mm-hmm. I'm Laporte. Back in there, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you've got, I mean, you've got Kepa Ariza Balaga, the Chelsea goalkeeper, oh. obviously out of form, but still more than capable. Uh, Audrey Zola, currently at what uh, Bayern Munich, I believe. Um, and then you've got Amir um, Laporte, as you said, Javi Martinez, uh, Ier Mendy from Sociedad, Under Herrera from PSG, then yeah, Inaki Williams, uh, Aritza Durez, both from Bilbao. So you've got plenty of depth in there. Maybe Antoine Griezmann could be eligible uh, because he is eligible to play for Bilbao, having played early enough for mm. Sociedad. Uh, and you've got uh, Yulan Lopetegui as your manager who is Basque. So there you go. You've even got a, a ready-made manager to come in and manage that Basque national team. So here's the thing. We're, we're definitely, I think I'm going to go with Catalonia because you went with mm-hmm. uh, Basque. We are definitely selecting um, like regions to, or territories who if they became FIFA nations would actually be very good teams. Like they would be good bets yes. to qualify for the World Cup, right? Like mm-hmm. There are other good arguments that you could say that maybe, um, this will hit home with you, Kurdistan. It would be great for mm-hmm. Kurdistan to get FIFA membership because there isn't like you know because they would want an expression of national identity right because they've been denied because they've been denied it for so long right so it would be great for Kurdistan but I couldn't name you a Kurd player that or or pick Mm -hmm. an 11 or anything like that yeah no I think I think that's fair (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah I have gone with uh, Catalonia I mean pretty Mm. much anyone who's uh, Catalan who you think of like say through the Barcelona system like uh, Gerard Piquet um, Bartra uh, oh, wait, this is harder after after Chaffee retired, right? Um, uh, you, you, want, you want my list that I have? Yeah, please do. Uh, so you could have a Catalan national team managed by Pep Guardiola. Yeah. You could feature, I mean, you've got the uh, the Barcelona players you mentioned, uh, Gerard Piquet, Jordi Alba, uh, Sergio Busquets. Ricky, how are you supposed to pronounce Puig. his last name? Ricky Puig. Thank you. Uh, but then Kiko Casilla could be your goalkeeper currently with Leeds. Uh, Gerard de Lefeu in there. Mm. Pepe Reina still around. Keita no, thank you. Monaco. Have you seen Pepe Reina Mark- lately? <laughs> hey, hey, he's doing things. There is genuinely a joke going around the West Midlands. You know, Pepe Ren is like mm-hmm. the backup villa keeper. Yeah. Um, that if you want to make sure you don't um, get the coronavirus, wear Pepe Reina's gloves because then you can't catch anything. <laughs> he is also internationally retired, but maybe would come out for Catalonia. <laughs> maybe they wouldn't want him to. The last two, uh, Keita Balde at Monaco, Mark uh, Kukorea of Hatafe. I have loved him. He's the one with the big, big hair. He's a feisty midfielder, but they could definitely have a solid squad, could the Catalan national you team. absolutely could, right? That team, I'm not going to say it could contend for the World Cup, but it would, like, you'd think maybe, oh, that team could get out of a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so, for sure. It's worth, um, it's worth noting for our listeners that... Um, as expressions of uh, regional and national identity, uh, Catalonia and the Basque Country 11, as I believe they're called, um, mm-hmm. do actually play international games, right? Every couple of years or so, they will put a team together um, and they will play friendly against a nation. Like Venezuela, I think, has played them both in recent years. They will just get a team together and play an international friendly in, a win- in an international match window um, at some point. Not necessarily... Um, on the path to being an actual FIFA nation, but just, just I think as a thing for people to gather around and celebrate. All right. So, so you're saying you definitely want these two, and uh, you don't care about Spain? Is that what I'm hearing? No, but what I'm saying is that this actually does happen sometimes. I know. It, I'm just trying to force you into a it, horrific corner. Yeah, I'm not. Go- I'm not going there. <laughs> no one puts baby in the corner. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying that this is almost some of the infrastructure is there for these national mm-hmm. teams to exist. So if you're going to do that. We really could do it. And here's the thing. I think Spain could take the hit. Yeah, I think they could too. They're, they're a decent country, yeah. that Spain. Like not the 2010 version. Like if you rip out all the Catalan uh-huh. players and maybe some Basque players, mm-hmm. they might be in trouble. But right now, I feel like just going forward, Spain could still be a major contender on the international scene without Basque and Catalan players. 
Yeah, I think it's a way bigger hit to your point. Uh, like if you took apart that 2010 squad, yeah. and there are a lot of articles from around 2014 which have uh, like uh, Iniesta in there and Xavi still around, and then yes, yeah, suddenly that that Catalan team looks way way stronger. Still very strong now, but maybe not quite uh, to that level. But th- this uh, this also uh, Jeff's question. This isn't quite in line with it, but it is the reason why I love Lister questions because. It's one of those things that, like, I kind of forget that, yeah, we're going to have new countries participating in competitions. And, and it always feels like, like, our current situation right now, like, that's it. We're done with new countries. The map There's gonna is be settled no more. forever. Exactly. And then, <laughs> obviously, that's not the case because in our lifetimes there have been many new entrants. Um, and one that I found myself I, – basically, I went and read, like, what are the next new countries? And I wasn't aware – Are you? did you know that there's a very likely possibility that Belgium is going to split? Oh, into the um, Flanders region and the uh-huh. other region, yeah. Wallonia, the French-speaking Wallonia, one. And yeah. then you'd have a divided uh, Brussels, since it's the capital of the EU. Mm-hmm. That would be fascinating. But yeah, that's another one where we're I not, We're I not predicting to, like, this is definitely happening, right? But I understand no, that there just, is definitely a, a tension between the two cultures. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and there have been some talks about it. But I, I like briefly found myself sort of splitting it up and being like, okay, who's from where and where? Where's Vincent Company going to play? And then I realized, not quite in line with Jeff's question, so didn't need to do that. But these are the types of questions that keep my brain moving, and, and I like them and, a lot for that and reason. And if anyone wants an example of something that actually happened, Kosovo is your example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, or Yugoslavia in our lifetime. That would be another one. That's true, that's true, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> a, a couple countries now participating in competitions because of that one. Oh. Um, Darryl, we've got we've got more listener questions. Uh, do you think it's time to jump to our next uh, advertiser, however? I think it's time to get dressed a little a little smarter all right yeah. so daryl mentioned earlier that like if you're working from home uh but you want to feel sort of like 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 you're still in an office setting or like you're still being professional take that shower eat that breakfast get ready for work and if you really want to go to the next level then today's sponsor the black tux uh has you covered because you could have that tuxedo delivered you could work in a tuxedo from home and now you're very very formal is this what we're really advocating wearing tuxedos to work from home no, we're not. But we are advocating wearing tuxedos when the situation is perhaps more appropriate. There we go. Uh, could be a wedding. Could be just a formal event. Maybe a gala. I've never been invited to a gala, but yeah. I assume that if I were, I would need to find a tuxedo. Let's make that our mission to get invited to a gala when social distancing is, uh, is no longer necessary. We'll get ourselves That's invited fair. to a gala. And then we will use theblacktux.com. And what we'll do mm-hmm. is go to theblacktux.com. We will uh, look at the... It's not, you know, it's not just the tux, right? You can also get your, your tie, your cufflinks, uh, your shoes, your shirt. Everything, mm-hmm. everything you need is available at theblacktux.com to either buy or to rent. And I think the idea of renting mm-hmm. is if you've only got maybe one event and you don't want to spend a fortune on a really high-end suit, you can just spend a little bit on having a really high-end suit just for a few days. That's right. Um, So they have the easy online ordering process. It brings your suit or tuxedo right to you. Uh, You pick a style. uh, You request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And then you can send it back just to confirm, but it will be delivered. I think they also have like package deals in case you want to get one for all of your groomsmen and you want everyone to go that route. So you've got lots of different options uh, courtesy of the Black Tux. I recommend maybe we all have a big celebration. Mm. Um, When it's safe to go back out, we should just have a massive celebration um, and everybody Everybody dresses to the nines. Everybody sort of wears their very best thing they've got or the very best thing they can rent. Thanks to the black. The social, the social closeness gala. Yeah, like the it. social closeness. Um, it's, it's okay to hug each other gala. <laughs> so if you're excited to attend that and you want to plan ahead, uh, you can order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and you can enjoy 10% off with the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com, code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment or for that moment in the future where we can all dress nice and see each other again. There we are. Uh, thank you to the Black Tux for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Chris Ramo for our next question. How was it fair that Barcelona was awarded an extra transfer outside the transfer window? It's somewhat irrelevant now, but will this set a precedent moving forward, or was this a one-time circumstance? Uh, Daryl, I have done some reading. You, I think, have done some reading in terms of being aware that this transfer happened. I'm guessing you have a guess as to why it was allowed to go forward. So, yeah, I haven't done any specific reading because you said, I'll do the research, you take your best Correct. guess, right? I mean, but I do remember this happening... At the time, it's Martin Braithwaite, right? Um, mm-hmm. Was signed from Leganes um, mm-hmm. by Barcelona outside of the transfer window. Um, and my understanding is it's not just because it's Barcelona and they get special treatment or anything like that. There is a rule in La Liga that you can make an emergency signing if you get loads of injuries in a particular position. Is that the, right. is that the basics? 
Um, yeah, it's basically uh, there's an exemption provided by La Liga and the Spanish FA in cases where players have been ruled out of action for five months or longer. It is deemed that an emergency transfer assigning is a reasonable request and administrators can facilitate it. So, yeah, basically the injury to Usman Dembele, the injury to uh, to Luis Suarez and then the sales of Carlos Perez and Abel Ruiz uh, at Barcelona were then able to argue that they had a, a complete lack of uh, striker options that they had been put into a crisis situation, which then allows them to sort of pursue a player outside of the window. The rules there are that a player can be brought in if they are either a free agent or if they contracted to another club in La Liga. So they basically had to look at options within the league. Um, that replacement signing must be a like-for-like replacement. You can't claim Usman Dembele is injured, so we need to sign a center back. It had to be a like-for-like one. And they had 15 days to complete the transfer, um, which they were able to do because there was that uh, the uh, release clause uh, for Braithwaite. So you mentioned um, Abel Ruiz. I'm really familiar with him because mm. I think I watched him at like a youth world cup and I was quite impressed with him I don't think he was sold I think he was loaned yeah um, sorry and I always wondered if but I think they didn't have a recall option is the issue. okay so there's no way to get him back right yeah because my initial reaction when I, I first felt this seems unfair was don't Barcelona have a bunch of talented kids that would love this opportunity mm-hmm. yeah it turns out yeah. they'd loan them all out <laughs> Yes, basically. <laughs> so, like, I think like Ansu Fati was was one option, but maybe the only like replacement option. And even then, you don't have much. And that's I, it. I it is in... Barcelona. They've got a lot of depth. They probably could have uh, dealt with this. I think uh, so. But I think, given that they had the opportunity, I guess they rolled the dice. I wondered if they had to argue about positions as well. Like, if someone said, "Isn't Ansu Fati an attacker? Couldn't you play him centre forward?" And they're like, "Ah, he's more of a winger." Do you know what I mean? Like, I wonder how many how many discussions like that went on. Yeah, I, I wonder, and yeah, and extending that further, I wondered if they were like, well, like Dembele could be a number nine, but he could be a winger, but he could be a midfielder, and that versatility is not something we have, so we don't have a like-for-like like player in our squad who can fill all those roles, so we need somebody who can do all three of those things, and it kind of, I, I do wonder if that allowed them to like really set home why they needed this exemption, why they were able to execute it, um, and then, yeah, they trigger the release clause, uh, Legane is not thrilled about it, Mm-mm. but that's that's the rules as they are, so it's not really establishing a precedent necessarily because that precedent was sort of already established it is it does seem at least unfair given that Leganes were then not able to replace anybody themselves because again the provision is injury not we lost somebody because yeah. of somebody else's injury oh so they couldn't do it because there's no because it's a different provision it can't be like exactly. so, yeah your best player was sold <laughs> unexpectedly yeah oh so maybe they should rewrite the rules a little bit but then you'd end up with a whole transfer carousel right that could be exactly that could be set yeah. off so to answer Chris Ramos question how was it fair that Bar- Barcelona got the extra transfer. It it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> but it just was how it was. Um, it wasn't, but it was according to the rules. Yeah, is the best way I can say it. Well, I like, think, and yeah, and you're absolutely right that like the obvious answer was like, all right, well then you let Lagana sign somebody, but you dig a little bit deeper, and it's like, okay, so then they trigger somebody else's release clause. Now that club is hard done, so they've got to do it, and you just keep going round and round mm-hmm. and round, and you end up with like having to draw a line somewhere. La Liga had that line drawn already, so here we are. I think there might be some uh, police officers and judges and maybe even lawyers who, who would very, very strongly disagree with me on that. But um, the laws aren't always fair. <laughs> they, they, they certainly are not. I think there are many people uh, yeah, uh, who would uh, agree with you there. And instead of getting into false incarceration and uh, for-profit for prisons, uh-huh. shall we move on to the next question yeah. very quickly? Yes, please. It's from Joseph Federico. <laughs> Unless you want our phone tapped by the CIA. No, thank which you. I'm fine with. They probably already are. I mean, can't they just download the show? Um, Joseph Federico <laughs> um, says... Since today, March 14th, mm. obviously Joseph sent, sent this in on March 14th, is Pi Day, um, and he inserted the symbol for Pi in the uh, question, which I really like. What is your favorite type of pie, Taylor? Chocolate chest pie, 100%, uh, automatically answered. Chocolate chest pie. Okay, I recently yep. had a something chest pie at like a street mm-hmm. food festival um, mm-hmm. here in Richmond, the, you know, the Broad Street Bon Appetit Festival. Um I did not know what chess pie was because it's spelled like the game chess, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems to be cheese. What is going on there? No idea. Okay. Genuinely no idea. I just know that it's basically a delicious uh, chocolatey pie. The crust and the chocolate uh, complement each other very, very well. It's what my grandmother would always make uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah, there's pumpkin pie. Yeah, there's sweet potato pie. Chocolate chest pie, the way to go. Uh, and then key lime pie, number two, because I, I am more of a fruit person than a chocolate person. My, my wife was the one to point that out, that my whenever we would go get frozen yogurt with all the toppings and whatnot, mine always looked like it had been created by a seven-year-old, and hers <laughs> looked like an adult had created it. My number one is key lamb pie. 
That's fair. That's Love fair. I mean, it, it is it is delicious. Yeah, it's the perfect mix of tart and sweet. That's why I like mm-hmm. it. You get this really nice balance when it's done right. Key lime pie for the win every single time. <laughs> All right. All right. I wouldn't say every single time, but I would say a lot of the time I go key lime pie. And then sometimes I'll go with those like yogurts that are key lime pie flavored. And I am always let down, not because they're bad. They're fine. It's just you need the crust. You need the crust with the key lime pie to bring it all home. I want to get back into chess pie for a second. I I just remembered that this is, it's not just a Southern thing. I think it's a Virginia thing. So there can be a lot of people listening to this who are just like, really? What is Taylor talking about? Yeah. And the more I think about it, I don't even think there's any cheese in it, right? It's not as if um, it's like uh, the, maybe the way we pronounce cheese down here becomes chess pie. That chest has got to come from somewhere. Is it from like Chesapeake Bay, maybe? Uh, I mean, I don't know. We're going to have to do some digging on this one. Yeah. I, I have an article open, but I, I don't know what oh, to no. tell you aside from like... Number one rule of podcasting, no looking at Google or researching while, while we're talking. You do that all the time. I do Get not. out of here. I do not. Only in emergencies. <laughs> Only in emergencies. <laughs> This feels like an emergency. All right, all right, Barcelona. We're establishing your own emer- emergencies when they fit you. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. Fine. All right, we'll do some research off the air. I'm sure somebody will message us to let us know. Uh, but in the meantime, we've got one more question. It comes from Sherwin uh, Kelikar. Should the Champions League stop using away goals as a tiebreaker? How say you, Daryl Grove? So Sherwin sent us this question, I think, not long after the uh, Liverpool-Atletico mm-hmm. game, where Liverpool didn't actually yeah. lose on away goals, but they sort of had to go all in because they were down on away goals in extra time at home. And it felt kind of unfair, right? That there's this extra bit of extra time where Atletico were able to score away goals after Liverpool had basically done everything right. See our match review if you want to hear all about that. Um, I think it's time to stop using away goals, period. I would be absolutely fine with away goals um, being used as a tiebreaker to just just be got rid of, done and dusted. So what would you prefer it be if, say, it was nil-nil in the first leg, 1-1 in the second leg? Penalty kicks. Extra Just straight to extra, it? Well, extra, extra time penalty extra kicks? Extra time and then penalty kicks, yeah. I think Because mm. I think there was a rationale for away goals, right? Which was, they thought, this is in the 60s that it came in in European competition. They thought maybe teams would go away and just think, all right, we're going to just like defend for our lives um, and try and get a nil-nil draw away, and then we'll go back to our place and we'll we'll win it there. Um, but mm-hmm. I, th- I still think, even what, 50 years later, they didn't think about the unintended consequence of... You, it's almost like a double negative where because the away goal becomes so valuable, it's actually the home team that is more risk averse. Um, yep. So you end up with both teams just being really cagey in the first leg. And it's almost like unless something happens to break it open, first legs can be absolute duds and you have to wait for the second leg for things to unfold. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time the second leg is meant to be like the advantageous uh, one to have. That if you're away and you lose 2-1 on the road, you've got the away goal, you kind of know where you are heading home. But oftentimes then, uh, as soon as you find yourself going into extra time and that away team now has the opportunity to score one goal in extra time and they're through, unless you score two, it suddenly switches and is definitely no longer advantageous. So I was going to say I'm okay with removing it uh, for extra time, that then it's just kind of all open. But I do like the idea, and I think this is what MLS did, right? They got rid of away goals, and, and it may I was I was not for it, but it did make the playoffs more exciting because both games sort of matter, but you don't have the caginess and you don't necessarily have the like, all right, so it's like this and this is what's going to happen have to happen in the next leg. Instead, it's just like, yeah, this is a game and then there's another game and then we'll see. It, it sounds like it wouldn't make that much of a difference, but it really, really de- did from a viewer enjoyment standpoint, at least for me. I think UEFA should try it and see what happens. And if it turns out that teams start going away and just shutting up shop and defending then maybe I'm wrong and that there was a rationale for it and it did have a good effect all along. But I think we could lose it and everything would be fine. And it would also, honestly, be less confusing. I'm someone who watches soccer all the time. I am still sometimes having to sit there and be like, wait, what does this mean? Who's who's winning this game now? Um, yeah. And I'm just sick of it producing... Um, it can produce results that feel unfair, right? Like, especially... When Atletico scored that one goal at Anfield and it meant they were going through 2-2, but they were going through on the one away goal, mm-hmm. in the moment that felt um, morally incorrect, right? Because the actual yeah. story of the game is that Atletico had scored a somewhat lucky winner, um, sorry, a somewhat lucky first goal early on at their own place. And they defended for their lives at home while Liverpool tried to attack. Um, and then they'd gone to Liverpool and Liverpool had overcome that and then just conceded this one goal. It felt it felt really unfair. I think away goals can produce results that feel incorrect. 
Yeah. No, okay. All right. I, I am surprised you swayed me here. You didn't get me uh, with Key Lime Pie better than Chocolate Chest. You didn't get me with Van der Sar better than David De Gea. But you have gotten me with, yes, let's just get rid of him and see what happens. I think the lesson is keep trying. And you, live, you eventually break <laughs> down that wall. Yeah, because, I mean, similar to our conversation about, like, uh, assuming that nations will just stay as they are for always, like, you go back to Italia 90, and basically everybody was just like, yeah, okay, we got to stop passing back to the goalkeeper. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> or, like, or was it 92 that that's how the Danes made it through? Either way, sort of changing that rule, uh, it, it was a thing that maybe nobody th- thought coming. Johan Cruyff hated that change, and yet here we are recognizing now that that definitely freed up and expedited gameplay quite a bit. No one picked up a back pass like Peter Schmeichel. Nah. Nah. <laughs> um, all right, we answered seven listener questions. We, we do have many, many more in the bank, mm-hmm. but I would love for people to keep sending listener questions. If you go to totalsoccershow.com slash questions, link will be in the show notes. You can send us one. I think I said on Twitter that the listener questions are the high-grade fuel that we'll, that we'll, we'll put in the Total Soccer Show engine over the, over the coming weeks of social distancing and coronavirus and all that, all that not fun stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh, yes, but we will remain socially distanced for now. Uh, I do. I do miss your darling face. Uh, we we recorded our last episode on Sunday in the office, and I wasn't even able to hug Daryl because he was being that responsible. We did so elbow well bumps. You, right? We did elbow bumps. But we did some elbow bumps. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, I do want to maybe just put this on air, just for anyone who was uh, concerned. You would ask me this, right? Um, mm-hmm. Does my status as a type one diabetic and stage four cancer patient <laughs> put yeah. me in the uh, immunocompromised category? Because those are two things you keep seeing listed as people who are at high risk for coronavirus um type 1 diabetes is you know well controlled so i don't think that's a problem specifically i asked my oncologist um because i haven't done chemotherapy traditional chemotherapy since august of 2019 is it safe to say safe to assume that i am not immunocompromised and uh, he confirmed that that is correct he also confirmed that my wife was wise to ask me to to uh, to prompt me to send that email to him all right. <laughs> well, there we go. Wives are smart. That's what we've Wives asked. We, nothing else we knew that anyway, show. right? We did. We definitely did. Uh, I just wanted to put that out there just in case anyone was, um, was concerned. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, all right. I think all that's left to say is, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will be back again tomorrow. 